Thank you, Kyle. It is good to be back with you. I think, according to my calendar, it was October, I think I was here last. I'm the guy they call in when pastors take vacation. So, or actually, or when they have children. I was down in Byron Center with John Gorvett's church. Uh, they just had a baby. So um, I bring you greetings from Frontline, which is uh, over on Plainfield. Is it just me? I'm yeah, okay. All right. Carry on, my wayward son. Um, <laughs> So I uh, bring you greetings from Frontline. That's our home church, and uh, it's my delight. A couple of you asked me about the book that I talk, was talking about last October. In January, it came out, The Bellowing of Cain. Um, hope for those who've blown it, thebellowingofcain.com, if you want to know more about that. I only say that because a few of you ask. Um, so there you are. You can find it. It tells more of my story, which I'll talk a little more about today as well. All right. <clears throat> the king had a secret. He sat there on his throne, his face composed, but his soul was a wreck. He was dead inside. His name is David. Perhaps you've heard of him. And although he's called a man after God's own heart, he has a secret. His own people do not know that their king is actually a conspirator, an adulterer, a murderer, a fraud. They are unaware, that is, until the prophet Nathan shows up, confronts David on his throne, and it all comes out. M. Live goes crazy. <laughs> the king is now faced with a choice. Confess or bluster. Perhaps you've been there. I have. When your greatest mistakes get called out publicly. Well, it's a choice that confronts us all in that moment. To confess or to bluster. Honestly, it's the same choice we make even when no one knows about our troubles. Even if your mistakes simply rattle around in the privacy of your own soul, causing you quiet misery, there's always the choice. Confess or bluster. David chooses confession. He chooses to agree with Nathan. He chooses to agree with God. Listen to his own words as he says it. These are written sometime later as David reflects on it in Psalm 51. He says, he cries out again, rehearsing that which he had gone through. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There is perhaps nothing harder in life than admitting that you were wrong. But in truth, there are few things in life that offer us a greater chance at healing, of becoming whole. Do you believe it's possible to be forgiven of the worst thing you ever did? Do you believe there's any hope of release from the worst moment in your life? Do you believe that your creator, God in heaven, desires a relationship with you enough 
to release you from your debts and your wrongdoings? That is our question today. That's the question we all have to wrestle with. You've been in a series on the Lord's Prayer. And up until today, as you've kind of worked the lines of the prayer down, um, it's all been really good stuff. It's been prayers about a loving Father in heaven, prayers about kingdom of God coming, a nice fresh loaf of bread. <clears throat> but then today's line sneaks up on us and hits us where it hurts. Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, perhaps as a child, you memorized it, forgive us our sins versus those who sin against us, or perhaps you use the transgressions translation. Makes no difference today. They all mean the same thing. They'll all get us where we need to go. But perhaps the, most, the only thing more difficult than forgiving someone else is recognizing that I, I need to be forgiven. And perhaps even harder, receiving forgiveness. Do you find it insulting this morning to be told that you stand in need of forgiveness? Does it hurt a little bit? The hackles go up, the hair on the back of your neck? <laughs> to find out that it's part of who you are? It's I, I, and I, and I, I wonder this because I know we live in a, in a world, in a culture, in a time that tells us that the most important thing that you have to establish is your identity. Like you have to figure it out. It's like a crisis. You have to decide who your authentic self is. We do it all across all kinds of spectrums. You have to figure out your, your racial identity, your social economic identity, your gender identity, your vocational identity, your personality identity, your body type identity, all these identities. And it's your job to figure it out. Find your place in the world. Get it straight. Who is the authentic me? And for most of us, most of the time, it involves the maintaining of certain masks. And self-perceptions that we think we desperately need, but, but, but often aren't exactly the truth. But Jesus' prayer here tells us the unthinkable about ourselves. That we are not who we think we are. We are not all that we suspect ourselves to be. We're not even in a position to determine our own identity. We're too small, we're too weak, we're too messed up, we're too finite. It's like you're standing on this one little rocky promontory, pen in hand, trying to draw a map of the whole continent, most of which is behind you and you can't see. It's pure folly. And then along comes your maker. The one who knits you together in your mother's womb, who knows you fully. Knows you better than you know yourself. Who made you for a purpose you may not even know yet. And that creator says certain things about you. Says this is who you really are. And then you're faced with a choice. Will you believe this all-knowing one? Or do you continue to try to build the airplane while in flight? See, your God says certain things about you this morning. You may have heard them before. Your God says to you things like, you have infinite value, infinite worth, made in God's own image. Your God says to you that you are infinitely loved this morning. 
that you were made exactly as you were intended. No mistakes were made. Now, I know this contradicts other voices in your life and in your own heart. Voices that tell you that perhaps you're worthless or you're a failure or that you're alone or that you're beyond hope or that you were made wrong. Well, guess what? Now you have a choice. You have a choice to take God at God's word or you can persist in self-deception on the belief that you have the power to establish your own identity, your own worth, your own value, your own purpose. Now, I confess this morning that I've tricked you a little bit so far. Because everything I've just said about you that God says are things you actually probably want to believe are true. They're already in your favor. They're things we want to accept deeply. We want to believe that God says these things about it. We're relieved to hear God say this because part of us wants to believe it. And if we accept God's declaration about us, these things will give us a little bit of peace. They will give us a little bit of silence from some of the ugly voices that whisper lies to us. But you have to understand this knife, the knife of your creator's voice cuts both ways. Yes, the same God who calls you beloved also has some pretty hard things to say to you. This is one of those things. You need forgiveness. You're not sufficient in yourself. You do not have everything you need within your own soul. You need the embrace of someone greater. You need the acceptance of someone who really matters. You're running from the truth... And the truth is, you done messed up, A.A. Ron. We're all messed up. And we all need a Savior. You need forgiveness. But this declaration offends our sensibilities, and we resist, and we bluster. Well, unfortunately, our resistance isn't going to do on this one. Because deep down inside, I think we actually do know that God is right on this one. It's no good acting indignant when Jesus says to us, um, you need to admit you're wrong and that you need forgiveness. Because a part of us already knows it. Even in our, our best moments can give us away. I, I talked before back in October. I'm not going to rehearse it all now. You can buy the book if you want the story. But a dozen years ago or so, I screwed up my life in some pretty drastic ways. Lost all kinds of wonderful things. And when people approach me after when I, you know, tell my story publicly and things, again, I'm not going to do it all here. People come up to me, even to this day, in fact, it happened to me earlier this week, even several times. They, they, I think out of a motivation to not want me to feel bad, to show solidarity, they will say things like, well, you know, Jeremy, we've all got our junk. You're not unique. Your story's not unique. We've all got problems. Well, we've all messed up. People, we mess up the way you've messed up, the way other people mess up. We're all messed up together. Jeremy, don't feel bad about it. You, you've probably said similar things when you're faced with somebody who's, who's, uh, mistakes in life were greater than yours. Someone who made a big public wreck of their lives. Maybe you say it because you don't know what else to say. Maybe you say it because you're just trying to be nice. You're talking to a person who made a really big mistake, a mistake perhaps you've never made, the mistake of the unexpected pregnancy or the mistake of the affair or the mistake of the screw-up that cost you the job or the blown relationship with the kids or the parents, the secret addiction or the not-so-secret addiction. 
And we don't want them to feel bad, so we, we relate. Now we've all got our junk. We've all, you know, we've all messed up. And we condemn ourselves. Because only one of two things is true. Either you're lying, and you're just trying to show sympathy, and you don't really think you're as bad as the person you're talking to, or we're all in this boat together. And we need forgiveness. It's been said there's no point in trying to help a lost person who doesn't know they're lost. You ever tried to give directions to a driver who was sure they knew where they were going? Like, honey, we've passed that store twice already. <laughs> well, this is another moment where we have to either believe our creator or wander about in self-delusion. Those are our two options. In David's case, when confronted with his screw-ups, his whole protective shell cracked in that moment. His sins were great, and they were now public. He had cheated on his own, on his own wife with the wife of a close friend, colleague, and then to cover it up, he'd had that friend murdered. Further, he'd employed a third friend to do the dirty work on his behalf. And all to no avail because the lady was now pregnant. So then he quickly used his royal authority to force the widow to marry him. And now he has lied to the entire nation about it. Man, he should run for office in the United States. He'd fit right in. <laughs> David hurt a lot of people. He stood in need of forgiveness of a lot of people. And as I say, David cracked in the moment of Nathan's confrontation. It all fell away. But you have to understand, there's more to that story. Good for David. He cracked when confronted. But there were months of hiding. The entire pregnancy of his child. He hid. He blustered. And after the fact, again, in another psalm, Psalm 32, that he writes as he reflects back on that season of his life, he describes what it was like to hide and to bluster. This is what he says. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Oh, this I recognize. This sounds like us. We hide. We hide our desperate condition. We refuse to own our true state. We lie to ourselves. We, we bluster. Hiding, however, is no answer. I spent 10 months hiding and it almost killed me. And that's not an exaggeration. It almost killed David. You reach a point where you just don't care anymore. The shame, the guilt, the fear are so great that you'd rather, you'd rather die than continue on. And eventually there's a realization that, you know what? I can't liberate myself, nor can anyone else. You've got only one option. You've got only one hope. Throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Forgive us our sins. How do you experience forgiveness? Well, David's the model here. You confess. Well, what does it mean to confess? Well, very simply, to confess means to, 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 to say the same thing about. It is to say the same thing about what I've done that God does. To agree with God. Consider again David's realization. Back to Psalm 51. 
He says this shockingly against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, in one sense, this is a complete falsehood. There's a complete lie in one sense. He has sinned against a lot of people. He sinned against his friend Uriah, against Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He sinned against his friend Joab, who had to carry out the dirty work. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He sinned against his own wife. And yet, and yet, and yet, in the face of all of that, David puts his finger on the central point. It's not as though he doesn't need to be forgiven by all these others, but that what he really needs is to be forgiven by his maker. And hereby offers us a deep insight into the nature of sin. That we do not sin abstractly against the law. Against the moral code. Against the universe. No, we sin against a person. We sin against the giver of the law. The founder of the moral code. The creator of the universe. The one we really need forgiveness from is God. And perhaps the most remarkable thing about this is God actually forgives. Now, I say that because that's a contrast to me, right? I struggle. When someone wrongs me and wants forgiveness, I struggle to give it to them. Because I, I, want, I, want, I want some kind of reparation. I want a public airing of my grievances. I want to make, make them suffer a little bit, right, before I give in. Right? I want to I I keep the advantage. I want to be able to call in the favor a little later, right? I want them in my debt. But that's not how God is. The Apostle John tells us what God is like in 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Like David on his throne, God exposes our sin to us, not so that we might be shamed, but so that we might be healed. So long as David persisted in his sin, in his self-deceit, in his blustering, he suffered. His healing began with confession. So I ask you this morning, what are you hiding from today? What deep source of shame and guilt holds you in perpetual bondage? Your own private version of hell. Friend, it's time to come clean. Not to me. I'm not a priest. You got the wrong church if that's what you wanted. <laughs> but to God. To confess, to say the same thing about your situation that God does. Now we're going to come back to this in a moment. I'm sorry to say, we're not done. But we have a little more climbing to do before we reach the summit because Jesus, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he didn't just talk about God forgiving us, but he also said more. He talked about us forgiving one another. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this creates a whole new problem for us. This seems unavoidably to say something like, so I who have received forgiveness am then obliged to pass it along to other people. In fact, the whole thing comes down us rather ominously, almost like to the breaking point of a threat. Something like, if you don't forgive, neither shall you be forgiven. It has that kind of force. 
as if I'm supposed to just be forgiving people without thought for whether or not they even acknowledge what they've done to me. But that raises a problem. It's a problem I actually hear about it, not, not infrequently, and it, and it usually goes something like this. Wait a minute. God doesn't forgive unless I confess. But now I'm supposed to forgive whether or not other people confess? Why should I be expected to do something God himself isn't doing? Don't I have the right to hang on to my wrath till the other party realizes they've done wrong and confess it? After all, that's what God does. I'll tell you, I, I actually have a great deal of emotional sympathy with that tension. Yeah, I, I feel it. There it is. But in the end, it's, it's, it's just not going to hold up. It's just not going to work. Because there are more than a few differences between God and I. And I don't just mean the fact that, you know, God being God, God can do whatever God wants without obligation to me. And so it's very true that in a sense, God is more than justified in demanding something of me that doesn't apply to God. That's true, but that's not what I mean. I mean, I, want, I would take it back a step further. I want to challenge the very assumption of the question. Is this really what God demands? That I do something God isn't willing to do. Let me use my own my own. Um, mistakes, my own, my own journey as an example. Again, that's what's in the book. As many of you know from when I was here before, in 2013, I blew up my life in some pretty dramatic and public ways. My family stuck around with me, praise God for that, but kind of everything else in life went away. And so the last 10 years has been a process of sort of rebuilding and putting life back together. And in that journey, I came to God, got on my knees, confessed, was restored and being restored, etc., etc., etc. That's my journey. Now, let me ask the question. When did God forgive me? Let that, sink, let that settle on you for a minute. When? When was divine forgiveness actually given? It's a little more complicated. Why? Because God is not like us. If God is eternal, which the church has always argued, then God's forgiveness, likewise, must be eternal in some sense. Meaning, if you want to talk about divine forgiveness here as an event happening in time with us, then, then you, almost have to, you almost have to talk about it in terms of sequences. It's, it's a very rough question, but God almost doesn't forgive in a when. If God is eternal, then there never was a time before, during, or after. All times are now with God. Now, I know this is a bit abstract, and there's a lot of mystery here, but hear me out. I don't know how else to handle it. This is how Christian theology has always argued. When was I forgiven? The scriptures talk about it in multiple ways. One of the ways the scripture talks about it is in eternity past, before the world was ever made. God loved you were marked by divine love before you ever existed. Before there was anything, you were known. God's people were marked by divine love before anything was ever made. When were we forgiven? And yet the scriptures also talk about this moment in time when an innocent man stretched his arms out on a cross and the weight of my sin and my brokenness 
was heaped upon his shoulders. He stood in my place and took the wrath that I deserved. And we're told very clearly, that's when forgiveness was granted. The world was remade. God loved. It's true. We were forgiven 2,000 years ago. And yet, and yet, and yet, the Bible also says this. There came a time in my life when I was for, for you, I don't know when it was for you, maybe last week, maybe when you were three, I don't know. For me, I was, you know, eight-ish. I don't actually don't know which time it stuck because I prayed the sinner's prayer about 100,000 times because I wanted to make sure it stuck. Somewhere in that time, we call it conversion, this moment where you meet Christ and hitch your story to his, you accept that, that story as your own, you accept that sacrifice as your own, you proclaim him Savior and Lord, you embrace him and what he did, and we're told that in that moment your sins are forgiven. So what conversion means, you become a child of God. And not just sins of the past, but all sins, past, present, and future, everything that's before God. I was forgiven in that moment at eight years of age. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, roll the camera forward. Scripture also says that in 2013, when I got down on my knees and agreed with God about the things I had done, I was forgiven. Do you see? It's just too complicated. If God is eternal, then this whole thing with God looks very funny and different. And I guess that just, that's what comes from worshiping a God who is eternal, infinite, and loving. And would you want a God that wasn't? Would you want a God that was easily understood? Would you want a God that, that, a, that a fourth grader could completely grasp and understand and that's all there was to it? No. If you're going to worship the God of heaven, be prepared to have your mind blown because it's complicated. Real things in life are complicated. You want to study rockets? Be prepared for some complicated math. You want to study medicine? Be prepared for some complicated biology. You want to study law? Just be ready for complications. <laughs> you want to know anything about the God of heaven? Be prepared to have your mind blown. Now, if you didn't follow any of that advanced metaphysics of what I've just said, don't worry. Let it pass. It doesn't matter. Here's the point. Here's what you need to hear. Scripture makes it very clear that in some real sense, God's forgiveness did precede my confession. There are senses in which that is true. And though I don't, I don't actually experience the benefits of that until I get down on my knees and own what I did until I confess, God was not just simply waiting around for me. God has been at work from the beginning. In fact, this is the, the story is a Wesleyan community, and Wesleyans don't often talk like this. But if you've, got, if you've got any Lutheranism in your background, you grew up Lutheran, you know some Lutheran friends, things like that, Lutherans love to talk like this. They say, yeah, 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 you've always been forgiven. God forgave you way back then. You just got to catch up to what God already knows. Your confession of, your, of the wrong you've done is your way of agreeing with God of something God already knows to be true. Just catch up to God. Say what God says about you. God really isn't asking us to do something God is unwilling to do. God sent his son to die in my place before I was a twinkling in my papa's eye. Paul says it much more pithy in Romans 5. God's love is such that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Guess what? 
Guess what's asked of me then? First to confess, then to forgive. I who have been forgiven now need to live out the, that reality with others. And it seems that we need to do this regardless of their response. Even if they don't confess. Now, of course, there may come a day when the other party approaches you and confesses. And in that day, guess what? If, you're doing, if you've done what Jesus has t- is telling us here to do, in that day when that party confesses to you, you're going to get to understand a bit of what it feels like to be God. Because you're going to be able to say to them, well, thank you for that. I know you sincerely, you're sincerely sorry for what you did. And I forgive you. But guess what? I also forgave you a long time ago. Even if they're never sorry, even if they never say a word, even if they never come to you, that's okay because you've already made your choice. I forgive you as I have been forgiven. The beauty of this is that it means that our acts of forgiveness are not held hostage to someone else's repentance. I'm sure, yes, their confession certainly would bring about a more robust reconciliation that would be possible without it. That's, that's true. But I can still do what I'm responsible to do regardless of what they choose. So it appears that when I extend forgiveness, even to someone who has not yet confessed, I'm being a little like God. I said a little earlier, you were made in the divine image. Show it. Show it. God is forgiving our debts. And we are called to do the same. So this morning it seems that there are two possible reactions or two possible places. I'm just going to give them to you and uh, we'll let the Spirit tell you which one is you today. And the two messages from what Jesus tells us are these. One, I need to be forgiven. I need the release and liberation that comes with confession. Or perhaps two, I need to forgive. I need to release another from their debts against me. Now, if you're in the first category, if that's your realization, the Spirit is making you uncomfortable at that point this morning, if you're being eaten alive by regret or shame over some choice you've made in your past, that person you hurt, that friend you cheated on, that money you stole, that cutting thing you said, that wrong you failed to make right, whatever it is, and it haunts you, then it's time to name it and confess it. To say the same thing about it that God says. Receive the forgiveness that is offered. Believe the gospel. Your greatest need is God's greatest gift to you this morning. Now, if however you're in the second category and you're struggling to forgive, then, I mean, the question is always how. How does one? And you'll need a holier guide than I to give you any guidance on that. But I, I will offer one thought to you as I, as I wrap it up. Remember, I mentioned earlier that the gospel declares that your sins were put upon the back of another. Your forgiveness was purchased at the price of an innocent man's wounds. That your peace was procured by someone who interposed himself between you and those you hurt. 
and took your debt into his ledger. Well, if now you find yourself in a position of needing to forgive someone, I might invite you to remember that for you to forgive the one who wronged you means that you have to realize that the person who wronged you has the same Redeemer. To forgive is to recognize another person's wrongs against you are covered by the same Savior who has covered your wrongs against them. That we who have allowed our sins against others to be laid on his back are now being asked to allow other people's sins against us simply to be laid on the same back. Their forgiveness was purchased by the same mechanism yours was. Once again, we just have to agree with God. In this, we discover that God in Christ has been everything we need, both for forgiving and being forgiven. When we confess, we are forgiven on the basis of that one who died in our place. And when we forgive, we do so because that same one who purchased our forgiveness also purchased theirs. So if you're wrestling with either one this morning, confession or forgiveness, I'd like to invite you to do something. I invite the worship team. You guys can come up and get ready. I know this is maybe not be the thing that happens a lot here, but sometimes I think we need to carve out space to give us time to reflect. And so as the worship team plays the final song as they, as they play along, I'd like us to just sort of open up the front here. If you have business you need to take care of in either one of those things, you need to agree with God about something, I might you just come, take a knee, spend some time with God. We're not going to put a microphone in front of you and ask you what it is. We're not, you know, there's no shame here. You're among friends. You're among fellow sinners. We all need this. If, if that's too much, kneel where you are. No one's going to come up and bother you. No one's going to ask you for secrets. At most, at most, and I invite those of you who feel that this is your role here this morning to feel free to do this. At most, someone may come up to you and put a hand on your shoulder or your back. They're not asking for information. You can ignore them. They're just there to pray for you. They're there to let you know you're not alone. That we are walking this journey together. Forgiveness and being forgiven. This, my friend, this morning could be your moment of liberation. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. This is the good news of the gospel. A gospel that liberates me from the bondage of my sins, both against God and against others. And one that liberates others from the bondage of their sin against me. This is your moment to be free this morning. Take advantage of it. Don't let it pass. Confess. Forgive. Discover this morning that your greatest need is God's greatest gift to you.